Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Christians and politics, specifically how Christians should see themselves as exiles and sojourners in this country or in any country, and how as exiles we have to avoid becoming entangled, but we also have to avoid becoming detached. And you can't talk about Christians and politics without talking about citizenship and authority and government and obedience and submission, whether we're talking about Christians in first century Rome, or we're talking about 21st century Christians in the United States, this is an incredibly important and challenging conversation. My guest tonight is Dr. Jared Saltz from Florida College, and he's going to help us to understand some of the historical and cultural context behind what scripture says should be the relationship between Christians and the government. I hope that you find this conversation as encouraging and as helpful as I did. Okay, well, Jared, thank you so much for being part of, of this series for us and, and taking the time to, to be part of this conversation. You're probably one of the smartest guys I know, so I am incredibly, incredibly excited to hear some of your thoughts on, on this subject. And I know uh, the congregation will be incredibly blessed. The first question that I've got is, um, you know, talking about the first century culture and the way life was then, obviously, I think we see a really consistent message from Jesus and the apostles about paying taxes and, and submitting to and obeying and honoring the governing authorities. Um, but sometimes we have a difficult time if we're not familiar with the history and the culture to know what would that really have been like uh, for Jesus and his apostles to tell the people submit and obey and honor and pay taxes, what would that have been like and how would that message have been received in that culture and in that context? This is a fascinating question because we have to think about it in two really distinct ways. The first way we really need to consider this from is from the perspective of just a normal Joe who's living in the Roman Empire and who's not a Jew or a Christian at this time. In other words, if you're just a guy, right? Or you're just a woman on the street in the Roman Empire. What are you thinking about? What, what does authority mean? What does paying taxes mean? You know, when Paul goes to Athens or to any of these other places on his journey, and he starts preaching these things to these, you know, pagans. What do they hear when he says submit in these ways? Well, in the Roman view of things, there are really kind of three types of authority. And they have sometimes overlapping, sometimes distinct ways. The first real focus of authority is this idea called uh, auctoritas, which is where we get in English the word for authority. And this has to do with your social standing, the history that your family has. There's this great story um, when the historians of Rome are talking about um, Pompey Magnus coming into Rome and he's trying to say that even though he's no longer a consul, even though he's no longer a general, he has no formal power. He doesn't control an army. He still has authority, this social standing that provides him power. And that when, you know, Paul's saying honor to whom honors do, that's part of this idea. But that's not the only view of authority or only view of power that you've got. There's also uh, potestas or uh, this kind of potential power, and that's legal authority. And legal authority is defined by law. You know, the, the Romans have these things, they're, they're original founding documents of sorts, their constitution, I guess we might call it, that come from, you know, right after Rome is founded, not too long after that. And they delineate what 
powers different people and different positions have. And it all really comes down to the father figure, the, the paterfamilias. And he has ultimate authority over the family, over the property. He can kill whomever he wants, even his adult children who've moved on and live in other uh, households. He has ultimate and total authority. And that view is exactly what Caesar has. Because when we get uh, an emperor, then he is viewed as the father of all the Roman people. So he has ultimate and total authority that is only kind of restrained by him wanting to do the right thing. And the last view of authority is this imperial power, the power to command armies, the power to seize citizens. And Rome viewed that they had power to the ends of the earth, the kind of uh, most important Latin poet, a guy you may have heard of, and probably everybody else has too, Virgil, says that um, Jupiter, the most powerful god, gave Rome power without end, imperium without end, boundless authority over everything. And so if you're living in the Roman Empire, then you recognize that what Rome claims as authority is total. And, and, and they have the power to back it up. And, and if you do things that are kind of against that, then they're going to come in and they're going to uh, provide this authority. They're going to enforce the ability to pay taxes or to do any of these other things. And they put those things down pretty harshly. But at the same time, if you're a citizen, you do get some certain rights. You are exempt from some certain taxes, from some certain rules up to a point until you're not. But then you flip on the other side and you're a Jew or a Christian living in here. And you say, how do I now interact with Rome? What do I do when Rome's authority butts up against God's authority? And that's really where the rubber hits the road, I think, when it comes to what Paul and what Jesus and what Peter and all these other uh, Christian leaders are really trying to get at. Yeah, and that really kind of gets into the next question. Um, you know, generally speaking, you, you, we have all of these instructions about honor and submit and obey, but then you do have, obviously, many times where there was this butting up against the, the Roman authorities or, or, the, or the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, and, and Jesus or the apostles or the disciples didn't necessarily obey everything that they were told to do. So how do we reconcile that idea of, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to submit to those in authority, but then there are other times where we don't obey those in authority? Yeah, and this is, this is the complicated part, right? Because by the very nature of Jesus being called and named Lord, it means that Caesar isn't. It means that, you know, this authority that Caesar claims he has, imperium without end? Jesus says, no, that, that's, that's not actually how it works. You know, the Gospel of Luke is my favorite example of this. You know, Caesar on his coins, this is kind of how you have this propaganda put out. You know, it's always been the case. If you look at our money now, it still tells us a lot of who we claim to be and are trying to be. And you read that Caesar is, is Lord and Master and the Son of God. And then we get around, and of course, we're reading that actually, no, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Master, and Jesus is the Son of God. And these are mutually exclusive titles. You know, if Caesar is Lord, then Jesus isn't. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is. You can't serve two masters, right? That doesn't work. And what Luke does by providing Jesus' genealogy, not just all the way back to David, which shows that he's the king of Israel, 
but going back to Adam is that he's the king of the world. And what happens in the gospel, I'm sorry, in, in the book of Acts is when you have all these people coming to Jerusalem, all these different uh, people of different nations, this is almost portrayed as a battle plan where now Christians are going to go and conquer the world from the Romans, but they don't do it in the way that we would expect. In the same way that when they don't submit to Rome's authority, they don't do that in the way that we'd expect. You know, we have this idea that if we're going to resist, that's like, you know, guns in our hands and swords on our hips, and we're going to field armies and we're going to rebel, and that's how we resist authority. But if you look how the Christians resisted authority, it's by dying. It's by going to the cross. It's by being willing to be killed. And we have lots of examples of this in the Bible. From uh, One of the most important ones actually comes in the time between the Testaments with the people called the Maccabees. Um, they come back against Antiochus Epiphanes. You can read about some of this in the book of Daniel and, and in Zechariah. But Antiochus Epiphanes, this Roman, I'm sorry, this Greek king, bans the Jews from studying the law, from circumcising their children, and tries to forcibly convert them by making them eat pork. This is why these same sorts of arguments are such a big deal when we get to the New Testament. And although some of the people rebelled, right, and they set up a new Jewish kingdom, the stories that are more remembered as being really important are those who were martyred and killed for their faith. It's the same thing we read about with Daniel or, or the three friends, right? They say, listen, you can tell us to worship God, and we can't. I mean, to worship this idol, to bow down this golden statue of you, Nebuchadnezzar, but we can't do that. We can only worship God. He's the only God. You can kill us, but we're not going to do it. And the same thing Daniel. He said, hey, don't pray, and he opens his windows and he prays. But notice what their resistance is. It's in some ways passive and in some ways very active. And I think that gets to the heart of your question, which is we submit in whatever possible way that we can. We do everything we can to be at peace with all men. We make every effort to submit and to honor Caesar and to honor governors and to honor whatever authority. But if it forces us to choose one Lord, you know, if, if a command comes and says, you worship an idol, or you bow down as an idol to Caesar, or you call him the son of God, or you don't pray, then we have no other choice to resist. But we know what's going to happen to us. We'll be fed to the lions, but we'll gain a crown. We'll take up a cross, but we won't take up a sword. And I think that episode with Peter and Jesus and the question of, will you come to the cross with me or will you bear a sword with me, is at the heart of our answer as Christians. It's incredibly helpful. And I think that it's, it's so upside down. And, and you said, you might've used the word surprising. It really is. It's, it's surprising to, to think of things in those terms, because on the one hand, everything that the gospel is undermines the claims that Rome made. And really everything that Jesus preached in his context, even within the, the Jewish world of Jerusalem, it undermined the claims of the people in authority and power. But instead of what you would expect, like because they don't have any real authority, then do whatever you want. Don't listen to them. Instead of that message, you get their authority isn't real or it's only given to them from God. So do what they tell you, submit to them, live at peace with all people. But if they tell you to do something or force you to do something that 
isn't godly or that you can't do in your submission to God because he's the real authority, then resist. But again, shockingly, it's not a resistance that that says, I'm going to make you die because of what you've told me, but I'm going to be willing to die because of my commitment to God. And what an, an amazing, surprising, shocking um, story that is, uh, but that this is exactly what's laid out, I think, pretty consistently from beginning to end. Yeah. So, so let's get to sort of modern day application, because obviously we live in a much different context than than Jesus did in Jerusalem or than than the, the first century church did in the Roman Empire. Um, but here we are in 21st century America, probably most of us that are watching this. Um, so as 21st century followers of Jesus, uh, there are times where our government says things that we don't like or tells us to do things that we don't want to do, we feel like might infringe on either our freedoms or our liberties or just our desires to do what we want to do. Um, what encouragement would you have for modern followers of Jesus as it pertains to, to living this way? That, that's the hard thing. And I think that's all of us, what we're all thinking about right now. Um, it's probably something we've thought about when we've had these weird COVID restrictions. It's probably things we've thought about as new questions from the Supreme Court or anything else comes down. And it's probably something we need to be thinking about now because we're going to kind of be putting into these situations more often and more often. And we need to figure out ahead of time how we're going to act so that we do so in an appropriate way. And what I'd say the first thing that we should do when, when addressed with these sorts of situations is first we stop and we ask ourselves, what really is at stake here? Is this really an assault upon my faith, upon Christianity? Is this as clear as saying, don't worship God at all, or don't pray at all, or, or bow before this idol? Because those are non-starters. And at that point, we can say, look, you do what you need to do. You throw me in that furnace. You throw me to the lions, but I must obey God rather than man. But is that the case, or is instead something else at stake? Is it my traditions that are the case? Is it my American rights that are being infringed? Um, am I here acting and responding as a Christian or as an American? I, you know, I, I love my rights. I love my country. I love the wonderful things that it has done for us. And I respect those greatly. Just kind of like Paul seems to really appreciate the fact that he has some special rights as Romans. You know, he, unlike a lot of the other Christians, he can appeal to Caesar, one of these few rights that uh, the, the, the Roman citizens have across the world. And you can use those things for the gospel. But he still allows himself to be beaten. And he doesn't pull out the, hey, um, I, you just beat a Roman citizen card until after the good for the church has been done. You think now he's, instead of getting just kicked out, he's brought out and everybody knows. And now he says, hey, you watch how you treat these other people associated with me. So we need to make sure that if we're, gonna, if we're going to kind of make a mountain out of something that is a mountain, not a molehill. And the second thing we need to do is we can look at the example, I think, of the Christians who suffered and of the faithful uh, Jews who suffered. When Jeremiah writes to the Jews in the city of Babylon, I think you may have referenced this um, in a previous talk. Jeremiah says, look, you're, you're going to be there a long time. You're exiles, and we're exiles. Peter writing in 1 Peter says, I'm addressing this to the, the diaspora. I'm, a, I'm addressing this to you as exiles, and that's all of us, because the world is not our home, 
And we don't really should, ex we shouldn't really expect rights from the world, but we seek the peace of the city. We seek to do everything we can to serve our fellow man and to be model citizens whenever we can. But we also have to remember that that city for whose peace we seek and in which we live and labor, if we read Revelation and Daniel correctly, that city is Rome and that city is Babylon. And that city is ultimately opposed to Christ. And our real allegiance is to heaven. That's what, what uh, Paul tells the Philippians. The Philippians, uh, the Philippian letter, Philippi is a, a Roman military colony. It's like the most patriotic of patriotic places. And yet Paul says, listen, y'all remember to be citizens of heaven. And if we do that, and if we keep our eyes on Jesus, if we take up our own crosses and follow him and keep that in the forefront of our minds at all times, I think we'll be all right no matter what else happens. Amen. Well, thank you, brother. This has been incredibly helpful. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the work that you do and thanks for being part of this conversation. Thank you so much, Wes. I really appreciate everything you've been doing. The primary passage that I want to consider this evening with you is Romans chapter 13, but I think it's really unfair to start reading in Romans 13. I think we have to back up just a little bit and start in Romans chapter 12 for some context. Of course, it would be better if we read through the entire book of Romans, but we don't have the time to do that this evening. But we'll start in Romans 12 and verse 14. And here's what Paul says that Christians should do, how Christians should live as Christians and remember, in the Roman Empire, in fact, these Christians are living as followers of Jesus in the city of Rome. And Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So, before we even get to the point where we're talking specifically about the role of government in our lives and our relationship to the government as followers of Jesus, we have to remember that one of the primary principles about Christian living is about non-retaliation. It's about not, not only not retaliating against our enemies or those who persecute us, but also going beyond that and blessing those who persecute us. Look at verse 17. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, here in verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And this really gets to what Jared was saying in our conversation this evening. Now, Paul isn't saying, you know, don't start a fight, but if somebody else starts it, you can finish it. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, live peaceably with everyone if it's possible. Now, there's going to be times where it's not possible. That doesn't mean that 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 you're okay to retaliate when it's not possible. It means that there's sometimes you are going to be persecuted. It means that sometimes people are going to use the sword against you. It means that sometimes people are going to hurt you even when you are doing good, even when you are blessing those who persecute you, even when you are loving your enemies. Look at verse 20. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is saying, by this, you participate in the judgment of the world. By doing good, you overcome evil. You don't overcome evil by doing more evil. You don't overcome people doing bad things by hurting the people who do bad things. You overcome evildoers and evil doing in the world by doing good, by blessing those who persecute you, by not just, not just speaking well of them, but actually doing tangible things for them. When they're hungry, feeding them. When they're thirsty, giving them something to drink. This is the ethic of Christians living as exiles in any community, in any culture, for all time. This is what it looks like to swim against the currents. This is what it looks like to live as sojourners and exiles in our community. Now, we get on to Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 where Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this gets to, again, exactly what Jared was talking about in our conversation. Be subject to the governing authorities. That means be submissive to them. Now, there's going to be times where we can't obey when when the government tells us, when people in authority tell us to do something that God forbids us from doing. Then, of course, we're not going to obey that. As the apostle said, we have to obey God rather than man. But even in those moments where we don't obey, where because someone is telling us to do something sinful, we don't obey them. When first century Christians were commanded to to worship Caesar as God, they didn't obey that, but they still submitted themselves to the governing authorities, meaning they allowed themselves to be thrown to the lions. They allowed themselves to be crucified. They, They allowed themselves to go through those horrible things. And and there is a sense in which we resist, as Jared was talking about tonight, there is a sense in which we are undermining the claims of the governing authorities, but we don't resist as the world resists. The world resists in a certain way, but followers of Jesus resist submissively. And that's almost a contradiction in terms. It's almost hard to understand. But as we were talking about with with Dr. Saltz, the, the whole point of being a follower of Jesus is that our way of overcoming evil is shocking and surprising, that we don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil by doing good. And he says here that all of these governing authorities have been instituted by God. Now, now that's an interesting claim, and, and we're going to see as we go through this that it actually, we, we look at that and we might think that that exalts these governing authorities. And, and we might think, I mean, Paul is talking about the Roman government, the, the emperors who would put Christians to death, the emperor that would put Paul to death, that would put Peter to death. 
And he says that they've been instituted by God. And we might think that that's an exaltation from what they deserve to be. But actually, it undermines their claims that their authority is because they are God. Caesar would have people to believe that he was the embodiment of a God, that he is a God. But Paul says, no, actually, these governing authorities answer to God. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now again, Paul calls Caesar or the governing authorities, whatever governing authorities those might be, he calls them God's servant. He puts them subject to God. And so he's saying that Caesar or whatever governing authorities would have no authority if it wasn't given to them by God. So they are answerable to God. God is still the one who is in charge not Caesar, not Rome, not whatever governing authority it might be. Now, Paul isn't telling them that all government is good. He's not telling them that they should give their allegiance to Caesar or that they should give their allegiance to Rome. He's not telling them that they should be Roman patriots. He's not saying anything like that. He's saying live quiet, submissive lives going about doing good. And if you go about doing good and you're not rebellious, seditious people that are rebelling against and resisting and, and doing what worldly people do, then you have no reason to be afraid. It's the rebels who have a reason to be afraid, but the people that are doing good have nothing to fear. Because even if the government oversteps its bounds and doesn't act as God's minister, as God's servant, then they will answer to God, but you will be vindicated by the one to whom the governing authorities answer. Look at verse 5. He says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, Paul isn't saying, you know, Rome is good as long as they do good things. And if they stop doing good things, then you can do whatever you want and you can rebel against them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying Rome will answer to God and you have to answer to Rome and you have to answer to God. So be in subjection. And if you're in subjection and you're doing good, then you have nothing to be afraid of. But if you're rebellious and seditious, then you do have something to be afraid of because God gave Rome a sword for God's own purposes. But, but Rome answers to God. Rome is God's servant. God, Rome isn't your servant. Rome is God's servant and God will handle his own servants. God will take care of everything. Now, when he says here to give respect to whom respect is owed and, and honor to whom honor is owed, we might think, well, you know, maybe if they deserve it, then I'll give them respect. We even have a saying that says respect is earned, right? And so we only respect those who deserve to be respected. But in the context, 
He's saying because of their position, because of their position, you give them respect, you honor them, you submit yourself to them. Even in those times where you can't obey everything that they tell you, still respect and still submit. I think Peter's words in 1 Peter 2 are helpful here as well. He says, 1 Peter 2 and verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So in every context, whether it's Peter talking or Paul talking or Jesus talking, they always tell followers of Jesus to go about doing good. Be good citizens. Take care of each other. Do what you're supposed to do. Be submissive. Show honor. Show respect. Even to these worldly governments, Even though you know it's God that's in charge, because you know it's God that's in charge, then you know that all of these authorities, all of these institutions, all of these government emperors and governors will answer to God because they are God's servants and God will take care of his servants, both the good ones and the bad ones. So you, as followers of Jesus, go about doing good. And, and you won't have anything to be afraid of. He says, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, servants, now listen here, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is where it gets incredibly hard, isn't it? Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is what it looks like to be followers of Jesus. In our context, in Paul's context, in Peter's context, in Jesus' context, this is what it looks like to be a disciple, is we make it our goal to live peaceably, make it our goal to live quietly, make it our goal to live submissively, and we go about doing good, not being rebels, not being rabble-rousers, not being seditious, but go about doing good, even when those in authority are not good and are not gentle and are unjust, our instruction is still to be respectful and submissive and to do good. Then he says in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So do we always obey? No, of course not. When, when someone in authority tells us to do something that God says not to do, when somebody in authority tells us to do something that's sinful and wicked and wrong and bad, of course we don't obey that because we have to obey God rather than man. But we do act submissively, even if that means 
submitting to the point of death, even if that means taking up our cross in order to follow Jesus. Peter says it's our job to follow the example of Jesus. And this is what it looks like to follow the example of Jesus. And according to Peter, when we suffer for doing good, endure it. Do not practice sin or deceit. When we're reviled, do not revile in return. When we suffer, do not threaten and continue entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. Continue entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. This is the way we live as exiles in Babylon, in Rome, or in the United States of America, wherever we are, whatever is going on, whether we live in comfort and luxury as followers of Jesus, or whether we suffer and are persecuted as followers of Jesus, this is the way we live as exiles in our culture or in any culture. This is the way that we swim against the currents.